this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 12 verses 37 and 50. So we're going to finish this chapter and just kind of give you a brief roadmap of where we're going. Uh, for the month of August, we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John because it's a, a good time of transition. And we're going to study the topic of evangelism by looking at the book of Jonah. And we felt like as leaders of this church, it would be a very pertinent and helpful topic for our church to challenge and encourage us to be faithful in God's charge to make disciples. And so we hope you can join us for that study beginning next week. Even if you miss some week, uh, you can go ahead and download the sermons online at our website. So for the month of August, we're just going to do Jonah 1, Jonah 2, Jonah 3, Jonah 4, and we'll be done. Uh, but for this week, we'll be finishing up chapter 12, again, by looking at verses 37 to 50. So I'll read our passage for us, and then I'll pray for our time. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. God, would you press upon us the gravity of the situation, just even as we've read from your word, that these are things pertaining to eternal life. And there is nowhere else we can go because you, you have the words of eternal life. And so grant us sight to see the riches of your truth. That we might not reject in unbelief, but we might come to belief. For those who do not know you, for the first time that they would repent and place their trust in Christ. And for those of us who profess to be Christians, believers, may we be fortified, strengthened all the more to pursue after our Lord and Savior entrusting ourselves to Him because He is our joy. He is our reward. He is our life. So nourish our souls, teach us, stretch us through Your Word for our good and for the glory of Your people, for the glory of Your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now only a few decisions in life have huge implications. And immediately some might come to mind in your head. You know, where will you live for the rest of your life? What career will you pursue? And who will you marry? These questions are on a different tier than 
What is your favorite color? Or what do you want to eat for lunch today? Based on your answer to life's bigger questions, life as you know it can look drastically different. And you see this. You experience this. You, 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 you can see this in the outcomes and consequences. You know, whether you enjoy or loathe the community and location of your home or the busyness of your schedule and the nature of your work or the person in the family you get to spend the rest of your life with. Now, these are pivotal moments, game changers. But there is no, there is absolutely no greater crossroad than when you come before Jesus Christ. There is nothing of greater importance than what you decide to do with Him. It not only has huge implications for your life here, it has eternal ramifications for life after. And our passage this morning plants us at the crossroad between belief and unbelief. As Jesus' public ministry wraps up, we are pressed to decide. Enough delaying, what will you do with the Son of God? The pressure is mounting and all of it comes to a head here as chapter 12 concludes. Now, if you've been with us, the last section ends on a very bleak note. Jesus leaves the crowd with a warning. He commands them, believe and walk in the light while you have the opportunity, while the light is among you. And after this stern exhortation, Jesus illustrates the importance and urgency of this matter by disappearing right before their eyes. It's as if he is a parable in living flesh because he vanishes from their sight. Look again at verse 36. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. With that, Jesus is gone. And his public ministry comes to an abrupt end. It means to shake us out of our indifference, to push us out of our indecision. Because the next verses, our passage this morning, is John's way of tying up any loose ends and summarizing the main point of not just that previous section, but of all 12 chapters of the Gospel of John as we've studied. The Apostle John is bringing it all to bear. He interrupts the flow of his narrative and provides commentary so that we would feel the weight of what's at stake. He is leading us to life's greatest crossroads, whether after witnessing Jesus' ministry, listening to his teaching for 12 whole chapters, will we believe Jesus is the Son of God, the light of the world, or will we disbelieve his revelation and remain in the darkness? The apostle starts with the bad example to persuade, convince us, pull us towards the right response. And we first see this in the pathology of unbelief. If you're following along in the bulletin, that's the first point, the pathology of unbelief. Look again at verse 37. John remarks, Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is a summary verse. And this verse sounds so familiar to our ears. It should. It stands contrary to the very purpose behind this gospel account. 
The author John has made his intentions explicit. He has made it known why he writes, pens, and records this particular account. He has been forthright and honest. But we need to hear it in juxtaposition to what we just read in verse 37. John writes in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he says this. Listen carefully. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written all 12 chapters of John and counting, these are written so that, here's the purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. With that etched into our minds, listen to verse 37 again. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. It's opposite. The very words meant to awaken faith in Christ and give life in His name, they're rejected in unbelief. And we can see the confliction and feel the tension. And it might leave us dumbfounded, questioning, wondering what is going on. Has it all been wasted? Is it all futile? Has God's plan been foiled? Did this catch God by surprise? Quite the contrary. God actually predicted such a reaction. Even the unbelief of the people fits into God's sovereign plan. And John proves this by citing the Old Testament, by showing how this actually fulfills the scripture, what Isaiah, the prophet of old, foretold. Look at verse 38. They still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The people's unbelief is no surprise. It's the same old story. This is nothing new. The people of Jesus' days are just following in the footsteps of the people of old, of the Israelites, the unfaithful people of God. When God sent His messenger back then, His prophet Isaiah, to declare, Thus says the Lord, the people plugged their ears and ignored the revelation of God. And what's interesting about verse 38 of John chapter 12 is that it's quoted from Isaiah 53. Get that? Isaiah 53, chapter 53. Now just think about that. This description of unbelief isn't announced at the beginning, at the start of Isaiah's ministry. This question of frustration is uttered after the prophet is seasoned in his ministry, after years of proclaiming the word of the Lord and pleading with the people, but to no avail. Though privileged to see the arm of the Lord, which is an idiom for all the divine works and miracles of Isaiah's day, these people still refused to believe. They resisted the message of God by rejecting the messenger, and they remain in their unbelief. But in pointing back at the Israelites, the author, Apostle John, is doing something more than just drawing up similarities and parallels. He's also exposing and warning us of traveling down the same path. He is hinting at the dangerous end that awaits those who are stubborn, who persist in unbelief. If God punished and exiled unbelieving Israel, 
How do you think, beloved, God will handle those who have spurned His Son? What kind of punishment and exile awaits those who hear Jesus' words, who see His arm, His miraculous works and signs, and still disbelieve? Unless you think this has nothing to do with us, let me make the connection clear so that it strikes closer to home. Church, this isn't just a history lesson or tracing the pattern of unbelief from Jesus' time back to the Old Testament. This is supposed to move forward from the Old Testament to Jesus' day to our day, to the word you hold in your hands. You see, an arrow is drawn at your heart, at my heart. Yes, the Israelites heard Isaiah. They witnessed the arm of the Lord. And yes, the crowd heard Jesus and they marveled at his miracles. But we, living on this side of the cross, we have heard it all. We have seen it all. We have the Bible. And we have the fullest revelation of God shining forth in the Word in Jesus Christ. Will you turn in unbelief? The Bible is crystal clear. To whom much is given, much is required. You see, it's not just whether we will follow in the pattern of unbelief, but the severity, the striking severity of punishment for seeing so much light, yet choosing the darkness. Don't miss that key word in verse 37, still. To press upon us, how bewildering this ought to be. They still did not believe. Do you? John gets to the root cause of unbelief in verses 39 to 41. Look in your Bibles. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, for a moment, we will tread in deep waters of theology. What John does is he's citing from Isaiah 6, a very familiar passage for those of us who have grown up in the church, where the prophet Isaiah is given a unique vision. You remember that passage, that section? You know what? Let's actually turn there in our Bibles because I want you to see it for yourselves. Flip there to Isaiah chapter 6. Pretty much right after the Psalms. We have Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm not going to read the passage in its entirety, but I just want you to scan. Look what takes place in here. You can peer down and just glance. You have the temple filled with God's robe. You have angels declaring the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You have smoke filling the house, the foundation shaking, and in the middle of all this commotion, the Lord sitting on His throne. The scene is frightening. The scene is glorious. And then God calls Isaiah, who will go for us? And Isaiah answers, here am I, send me. What do you expect next? You would think that after such a majestic encounter, Isaiah would then continue to have fruitful, abundant ministry. You would think that the great commissioning of God's prophet would lead to a time of religious reform, 
where nations and all people are turning back to the Lord. But that's why God brings Isaiah back to the ground by preparing him for the kind of results and reactions he will actually see and experience. Look at verses 8 to 10 of Isaiah 6. So, and I heard Isaiah speaking, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And then here's the fallout. He said, Go and say this, say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Sure, Isaiah's ministry starts off with a bang, starts off on a high point in the throne room of God, but that's as good as it gets. It will all go downhill from there. When God tells Isaiah how people will time in and time out reject his message. Why? Because God has left the people to their unbelief. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. God has done it. Now, beloved, that is a scary truth. The more you resist, the more you disobey, the more you disbelieve, the more God is inclined to give you over to these heart postures. You can turn back to the Gospel of John. This is what is occurring in the hearts of those who still do not believe. This is the warning of Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Do you realize the severity of remaining in unbelief? It may be a sign of a hardening, of a hard heart. Now, you might want to scream if you're logical and if you've been paying attention. This is unfair. This is unjust. How can we still be culpable? How can man still be responsible for not believing if God hardens our hearts? Now, we can talk about this in extent after the sermon. I don't have time to elaborate now. But the short answer is this. It's because the heart still willfully does what it wants. The heart still willfully does what it wants. No one, absolutely no one, begrudgingly disbelieves. It's not like you want to believe and God is forcing you otherwise. No, your actions, including your belief, is always in accordance, in concert, in sync with the desire and will of the heart. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. Now, I know that's a lot to digest, so let me try to illustrate from the Bible. Many of you know the character Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the archetype of resistance, of disobedience, of disbelief. You know the story. The Egyptian ruler refuses to let the people of God go. He will not listen to the word of God, no matter how many signs and miracles Moses performs before him. But if you're a keen reader in these passages in Exodus chapter 7 to 12, you'll pick up on an interesting sequence. In the early signs that Moses performs, Pharaoh refuses to believe because the text tells us he hardens his own heart. But as the trend continues, God delivers Pharaoh over to his disbelief. 
Because after the plague of boils, we read this surprising verse in Exodus 9, verse 12. But the Lord, now it's the Lord who hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh did not listen to them, to Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. You see, there comes a point when God no longer resists Pharaoh's own hardening. Fine, you know, you still want to continue in unbelief, then plunge headfirst to your own demise. God allows it and induces it. If Pharaoh's would not believe, eventually became Pharaoh's could not believe. So which is it? Is it unbelief owing to God or to Pharaoh? The answer is yes. Ultimately, it is of God, but ultimately, Pharaoh is still accountable because whatever the case, it's the heart that is hard. It is his heart. It's not like Pharaoh wants to obey and believe, but is hindered from doing so. You know, like, oh, I really want to let these people go, but I I just can't because my heart is hard. No. Pharaoh acts in concert, in sync, in accordance with the desire and will of his heart, regardless of who does the hardening. And for that, he is culpable. For that, he is responsible for not believing. And many of you know this by your own experience. Whenever you sin, whenever you disobey, regardless of how much remorse or regret you express afterwards, regardless of how much you want to shift the blame to a person who instigated it or to circumstances that compelled you to sin, whenever you sin in that moment, you do it because you want to. Plain and simple. You act out your heart, whether it's humble in obedience to God or whether it's hard in disobedience to God. These verses are sobering and serious because it teaches us when you persist in unbelief, there may come a point when God will give you over to it. Do you realize the gravity? Non-Christian, You've heard the gospel. And hearing the gospel maybe at first used to strike your heart with conviction, but the habit of indifference and inaction has taken the sting out of it. Your shoulder shrugs now have been internalized into a hardened heart. And sermons that used to weigh heavy on your conscience are now just dull. The light is among you, as Jesus says, for a little while, and then it's gone. But listen, this isn't an experience exclusive to non-Christians. Christians, you know this as well. You can feel how your heart desensitizes the more you continue in a particular sin. You no longer mourn like you did the first time you were humbled by your lust, by your laziness, by your anger. They now dominate your life so much so that you've just come to accept them as normal. The sin that used to grieve you, that used to fill your heart with guilt, now barely causes you to flinch. Your apathy towards God feels a little more normal today. Why? Because you were apathetic yesterday and the day before. Oh, but beloved, non-Christian and Christian, if there is even a shred of remorse, consider that God's grace. Consider that a sign of life, hope, conviction to turn you from unbelief to faith. And do so now in Christ. The Bible teaches and holds up both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
And I'll be the first to admit, we can feel our minds peaking when we try to reconcile these two difficult doctrines. But the issue is not how our minds will harmonize these difficult doctrines. The present issue is the heart. The people's unbelief is a result of the hardness of their heart. God sent them a Messiah that didn't fit their bill, that didn't match their desires. Their eyes could not see the glory of Christ, a Christ who would die. Their minds could not fathom a king, a crucified king. So what did they do? They turn to their own peril in unbelief. This possibly, this can't possibly be the Son of God. Now why this lesson? To teach us that salvation will not be achieved or attained by human efforts. Man is so sinfully played, so mentally warped, God must grant new sight and give a new heart to turn us towards Christ. You know, up to this point in the message, it sounds all like very morbid news. It leaves us feeling utterly helpless and desperate. But that is the whole point, church. Despite blind eyes, despite hardened hearts, despite obstinate unbelief, we place our confidence not in ourselves, but in God. You see, I don't trust in my ability, my wisdom, my strength to change myself. I know I fail time in, time out, that I can't do it. I need help outside of myself. I need a Savior. I need a God who is so sovereign, He not only hardened hearts, He breaks them. Neither Israel's rejection nor the crowd's callous response catches God's plan off guard. Do you know why that's good news? It tells us he's in control so that he can take hold of my wayward soul. He orchestrates and oversees everything, including great atrocities and tragic unbelief. Why? So that he becomes the focal point. So that he becomes the object of our hope. So that he is the anchor of our souls. So that we believe in him. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But our passage shows us faith can also be deceptive. Some indeed believe, but half-heartedly. The pathology of unbelief is seen not only of hardness of heart and the sovereignty of God, but in the fear of man. We find this in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even authorities, believed in him, but... For the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For, here's the underlying motivation, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These verses expose to us who we truly are. We can see ourselves in these characters, in these people. Some actually believe in Jesus, but it's immature. Faith starts in the heart. But faith doesn't end there. True faith doesn't end there. It must flow forth to our hands, our feet, our lives, and how we live before others. These people may believe Jesus, but it's an incomplete faith because it is completely dwarfed by the fear of man. Sadly, I think this characterizes much of Christianity today. This may be our daily struggle. Our devotion to Christ is often swallowed up by the fear of others. And we might not be driven out of the synagogue, but we are intimidated 
by similar worries, similar concerns. We can imagine ourselves expelled out of our workplaces, ostracized by our circle of friends, or even shunned by our own family. We can picture the look of scorn, the condescending words, the exclusion that comes from living out our faith. And so we cower when we ought to be courageous. We mutter a quick prayer before the waiter comes, or our colleagues can pick up on what we're actually doing. We cover up our Bibles with other books when we're at the local coffee shop. We're vague about our weekend plans or our positions on controversial topics because we want to be popular, not persecuted. We have become chameleon Christians, adapting to our surroundings. But by blending in, we're not only camouflaging ourselves, but our faith. And what's the point of that? What kind of faith is that? To try to play both sides is a terrible place to be. It tears you apart. You know too much of Christ to be content with the world, and yet you cling too much to the world to be content in Christ. Choose this day, as the Bible says, whom you will serve. You know, as a pastor, I see this visibly in ministry, in the lives of the flock, because there's not much that stunts Christian growth more than caring about what people think. And if your life is ultimately dictated by the fear of others, then your faith is not in God, but in man. The bottom line is you love the praise, accolades, approval, and the glory of man more than the glory of God. Now what's the antidote to such an inescapable temptation? What's the solution to such a dominant force in your life? It's very simple and yet very profound. You have to Combat your love for the glory of man with a greater love. You see, guilt is a poor motivator. It will only take you so far. But love, love is where the rest of you follows. You see, the only way to overcome your love for sin and the glory of men is to be overwhelmed by something greater, by the love of God, by the glory of God. You love God when you see His love, when you see Him as lovely. Christian, the only way you will die to your reputation at work, at school, before family, is when you bask in your identity in Christ, when your life is secure in Him. Christian, the only way you will care less about what people say and think about you is by caring more about what God has said, what He thinks about you. And what has He said, beloved? This is the gospel message that marks us as Christians. That the good news comes after the bad news. That we are all sinners. Though created in the image of God, we have played the part by rebelling from our Creator. By spurning our Maker. By deciding to live for ourselves. And because God is holy and just, He must punish every criminal. And the punishment for sin is eternal damnation. A God in holiness and in love sees us in our helpless state, that there's nothing we could do to ever right our wrongs. And so he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect, blameless life, the life we ought to have lived, so that when he dies on the cross, he doesn't deserve to be there. And because he doesn't deserve to be there, he can stand in our place. He can bear our sins as substitute 
So that the good news of salvation is this. If we would repent, confess our sins, turn from them, look to Jesus Christ, place our trust in his life, death, and resurrection, then we can be forgiven of our sins. God would look upon his son as if he had lived my blemish, sinful life, and he would crush his son to uphold his justice and righteousness. And he would look upon me as if I lived Jesus' perfect life and welcome me as a child of God. He'd bring me into his family yet again. This is the good news of the gospel. And this is a message we not only receive in our minds, but it drills down to our hearts and captivates us so much so that it compels us to be changed forevermore. The greatest tragedy is to reject the great news because of your great fear of others. Don't. Soak your hearts in Christ so you believe. This leads us really quickly to the next section, from the pathology of unbelief to our second point, the priority of belief. The priority of belief in verses 44 to 46. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And Jesus returns to a topic he has taught on before. It might seem repetitive. This is the prologue of uh, the Gospel of John all over again. The scripture reading this morning. Jesus was sent by God to shine as his brightest revelation to this darkened world. And today, we know so many who profess faith in Christ. Believing in God is common. Most people give props to the big man upstairs, right? But pull these very people about Jesus, about Jesus Christ, and you get some very ambiguous, abstract answers. Some are uncertain. Some downright discredit and dismiss Jesus. But Christianity... The faith of the Bible knows nothing of separating God and His Son. According to the Bible, what you do with Jesus is inextricably linked with what you do with God. Anyone can claim faith in God, but Jesus sets the parameters for genuine faith in the God of this Bible. And He, Jesus, stands at the fork in the road. He is God in flesh. God the invisible made visible in Jesus Christ. To jog your memories, John chapter 1, verse 18 reads, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. You see, the two are inseparable. Jesus highlights the unity to up the stakes, to increase the ante. You need to believe. He's making sure everyone is well informed over what's at stake. To receive Jesus is to receive the one who sent him. And to reject Jesus is to reject the one who has sent him. Jesus is publicly prodding one last time. If he comes into the world as light, what will you do? Will you believe? There's a priority here because there's only two options. You either love the darkness or you love the light. You either plead ignorance is bliss or you come into the light. And judgment will fall. It always falls. The only difference is, is if it has fallen on Christ on your behalf or if it will fall on your own shoulders in the future when you stand before Him. 
Jesus teaches this by reminding the people of his mission statement. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, to offer hope and life in him. But the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, well, they actually have a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. You know, a good doctor tells the truth, right? He doesn't lie about your health or beat around the bush. A good doctor will be forthright and honest, no matter how grim the news is. You have cancer. He'll tell you. Now, these words are spoken not because the doctor is mean and wants to ruin your day. These are blunt words spoken out of love and truth to press you to action, to push you to seek the right treatment and find the proper care. But if you refuse, if you refuse to believe the doctor's words, well, those words bring about your judgment. If you persist in denial, well, your health hangs on your own head when you deteriorate to death. Jesus, Jesus is the good doctor. And he comes with hard words, but honest words. You are sinners. You all are sinners. And these words are spoken not because Jesus is some killjoy and he wants to destroy you and leave you in despair. No. These words are spoken out of divine love and truth to press you to action, to push you to seek salvation in Him, in the greatest doctor. But if you spurn this doctor's diagnosis, well then Jesus' words become your own judgment. If you refuse to believe, then your eternal destiny rests on your own head. Because Jesus, well, Jesus came to save, to declare all the Father has given him, and to speak the words of eternal life. And listen, this is not just the point of entry for non-Christians. This is for all of life. When you obey Christ as Lord, Christian, is this your attitude towards Christ? A belief that permeates not only the, the, the first moment of conversion, but a belief that permeates into every sector. Your marriage, your parenting, your church, your disciplines, your habits, your entertainment, your ambition, what you love and what you hate. All his words are good words. And that's why this passage ends with a sweeping conclusion, verse 50. And I know that his commandment, here it is, is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is Jesus' last pitch to show us the priority of belief. His final attempt to persuade us to faith. There is no, no th- nothing of greater significance. Pay attention here. Jesus says flat out, his commandment is eternal life. Here is the heartbeat of God. This is the key to belief, not only in what is said, but who is saying it and why. It is like when a father instructs his son. A father might say, you know, I love you and everything I do is to see you thrive and succeed in life. And this becomes the interpretive lens, the grid by which the son is to filter everything the father does. So that all of the father's actions, teaching, commandments, 
serve this ultimate purpose, this ultimate end, this ultimate goal. He might say, have fun, eat your vegetables, do your homework, be careful. And even you're going to be punished by being grounded. This all falls under the all-encompassing umbrella of the father's desire to see his son flourish and excel in life. Now, how much does God love us? He sends his son to proclaim the words of life, to relay our creator's grand decree, to declare his commandment. And it is eternal life. So that whether he says to us, listen to my instruction, humble yourself, turn from your sin, look at the cross, see my love, beware of the wrath to come, believe my son, enjoy life, come to me. It is all for our eternal good. It is for the purpose of eternal life. Jesus' works, wonders, and words are for this ultimate end, ultimate goal. Will you believe it? And to persuade us, He has given us His Son. Not only as the message, but the messenger. A pastor would often explain the love of Jesus to his children through a story. And he would tell about how a little boy wanted uh, a model sailboat. So he began to save his hard-earned money until he finally had enough to purchase it. And so he went to the toy shop, picked out his kit, uh, making his selection with great care. And then he brought it home, spent weeks perfecting the boat, building it. And finally, it was done. It was finished. So then he took it out to the lake. And it sailed beautifully right across the lake, but then out of sight. And naturally, the young boy was distressed, and he began a uh, frantic search. But despite his efforts, he was unable to find his boat. And so several weeks later, he was passing uh, the same store, and and he looked into the window, and much to his amazement, he saw his boat there on display, but now with a sizable price tag attached to it. He went in and told the owner, Sir, I would like to have my boat back. And the owner said, Well, I'm sorry. I paid good money for it. It's mine. You will have to pay for it. And so that poor boy worked and worked until he finally had enough money again and he bought back his own boat. And as he walked out of the store, he said, Now, now boat, you are twice mine. Once because I made you. And secondly, because I bought you. This is the kind of God we worship. The kind of God that calls us to believe. A God who had created us, and then a God who had purchased us yet again by his death on the cross. And now we, we can be twice his. How? He stands at the crossroads and he invites us to believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it's living and active, how it pierces us and unravels our hardness of heart and leaves us exposed in our weakness, in our brokenness. And we ask, Lord, that we would respond rightly, that you would give the gift of faith, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that they would see Jesus Christ as compelling, as wonderful, as a merciful Savior, as a gracious Lord, and that they would leave the chains of their sin and come to their good, their good Savior. Lord, for those of us who do know Christ, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be brimming to the top, filled with joy that we get to follow and serve this kind of Savior, one who would lay down his life for us. Lord, may that engender within us a greater desire to believe, to place our faith and trust in him, so much so that it transforms our life. 
We thank you for your word and pray that it continue to have its perfect effect upon our hearts and that we would fellowship over it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.